The Oracle Network. Hey, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. We're just two normal-ish friends who wanted more creepy local stories. Our episodes start with a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on each topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. Come join us. We've got plenty of wine, laughs, and stories to share. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13 and Forest Park. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place in the Oregon Vortex on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and many more. For all of you that are listening, if you have any true crime or paranormal stories that you want us to share, maybe with the whole Pacific Northwest, they don't have to be from the Pacific Northwest if you would like to share, email us at pnwhauntsandhomicides at gmail.com. It's all spelled out, no special characters. Last but certainly not least, head over to Patreon to support the show and we can provide even more creepy content. Have Have a a creepy creepy ass ass day. day. Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. For today's episode, Winston and I want to take you with us to our neighbors up north in British Columbia. Our case takes place in the province of Victoria, more specifically, the suburb of View Royal, a quiet middle class neighborhood. At the time, back in 1997, the population of View Royal was less than 800,000. According to author Rebecca Godfrey, View Royal was the kind of cliche place where everybody knew everybody. But before we get into it, I want to take a brief detour to India. That's where Manjeet Virk grew up, eventually becoming a scholar. He met his future wife, Simon, and the two relocated to Vancouver, BC after their daughter, Rina, was born. Rina is Punjabi for Mir, and her parents were full of joy after her birth. Manjeet worked at a mill when they moved to Vancouver, and the family quickly realized that View Royal wasn't exactly a high-end area. But the Verks were a humble family, and they didn't need much to be happy. Well, at least Rena's parents didn't. Rena was described by her parents as a, quote, rare combination of bold and innocent, end quote. Although her family was of South Asian heritage, 
they were actually devout Jehovah's Witnesses, which is fairly unusual. For those who aren't familiar with this sect of Christianity, they adhere to the teachings of Jesus as practiced by his apostles. One of the main divergences between Jehovah's Witnesses and Christians is that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Holy Trinity because there's no such thing referenced in the Bible. Another key difference is that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe people go to hell after death. Instead, they simply, quote, pass out of existence, end quote. So that's all interesting, but the important thing to remember for Rena's case is that she didn't celebrate her birthday, unlike her other peers. By the time she entered her teens, Rena was starting to rebel and separate from her parents' beliefs. In 1996, when she was just 13, Rena falsely reported her father for sexual molestation. She was placed in state care for several months, but because Rena had to cook her own food and do her own laundry in the foster home, Rena later dropped the charges and returned home. I did read, though, that Rena went back into foster care sometime later because she refused to stop smoking when she went back to her parents' house. So I think when the crime we're going to discuss happened, Rena was technically living in a group or foster home, but she was visiting her parents and siblings on a regular basis. So, like I mentioned before, the age of 14 hit Rena hard. Not only did she falsely accuse her father of sexually abusing her, she was smoking, she started skipping school, and she was constantly fighting with her parents. Rena also told her parents she didn't want to be a Jehovah's Witness anymore. She wanted to be able to have a birthday party. Although things were heated between Rena and her parents, Rena remained close to her uncle. He became her confidant and really tried to help her on the straight and narrow. He supported her in a way that her parents just couldn't at that time. I think one of the main reasons for their close relationship was because Rena's uncle wasn't a Jehovah's Witness, so I think Rena felt like she didn't really have to be one either. The teenage years are hard for all young adults, and Rena was no exception. Although she was only 5'6 and 120 pounds, everyone said Rena was big for her age and had weight issues. Which, I guess, in the late 90s was big, but I don't see it. Anyways, the most common description I found of Rena was that she was, quote, awkward with low self-esteem or a loner desperate to fit in, end quote. Unfortunately, this meant that Rena was bullied quite a bit. But she wasn't perfect either. Rena stole one of her classmates' phone book, which I assume was like one of the little pocket phone books they made back in the day where you would keep all of your friends' phone numbers, long before cell phones. Rena then proceeded to call some of the boys listed in the book, and she told them that the girl she stole the book from, Nicole, wasn't as pretty as she thought she was. Rena also told several boys that Nicole had AIDS and Nicole's eyebrows were fake. Like I said, not exactly the best response, but also kind of understandable given that Rena was just a 14-year-old girl. She was probably just trying to get back at her tormentors. Well, as you can imagine, Rena's actions didn't go over well with Nicole. So in true mean girl fashion, Nicole decided to plot her revenge against Rena. And for some reason, this meant that Nicole wanted to murder Rena. The plan was, quote, messy and inchoate, end quote. Probably because it was concocted by teenage girls. Basically, Nicole planned to meet a bunch of her girlfriends at her school, and that's where everything would go down. I want to pause here for a second to dive a little more into mean girl culture. 
Most psychologists will tell you that mean girls are bred out of insecurities these girls have about themselves. According to an article by Psychology Today, mean girls use what is referred to as relational aggression as a tool to cope and express their emotions of anger. According to the same article, relational aggression is defined as, quote, the act of hurting others by manipulating or harming their relationships, end quote. Relational aggression is used to achieve and maintain one's popularity and create fear in friends and other peers. Mean girl culture or relational aggression is basically a subset of the broader category of bullying. In Rena's case, the mean girl culture was taken to the extreme. Although I don't condone the things that Rena did or said about Nicole, that certainly doesn't justify any act of violence taken toward her. Again, not excusing Rena's behavior, but the psychological trauma of being bullied and ostracized also takes a toll one that isn't necessarily visible to outsiders because the pain tends to be emotional. But unfortunately, that's the problem with bullying. It escalates, often to the point of no return, where someone ends up physically hurt or worse. Another problem with the mean girl mentality is that it doesn't stop at the individual using relational aggression tactics. The aggression bleeds into others and can affect their actions, i.e. peer pressure. This is important to remember as we move forward with the case. On November 14, 1997, Nicole called Rena and asked her if she wanted to meet herself and some other girls at Walmart. Rena had no idea what was in store for her that night. Her parents said she had, quote, so much hope in her eyes, end quote. Let's not forget, this was a girl who desperately wanted to be accepted by these girls and be friends with them. So Rena packed up her backpack with her pajamas, her perfume, and her journal, and she promised her parents she'd be back home by 10 p.m. Oddly enough, that night, a Russian satellite exploded and was seen falling back to Earth. This would dominate the news coverage in the coming days, but another more catastrophic event was still to come. Rena, Nicole, and 50 to 60 other teenagers were hanging out in the field behind Shoreline Middle School. Nearly all of them were unaware of Nicole's plan, and almost none of them had ever even met Rena before. Which makes sense, because Rena was described as a loner and kind of a social outcast. A janitor at the school called police at 9.25 p.m. after one of the kids threw a rock through a window of the school. Police came to break up the party, which caused most of the teens to run off. But some of the teens, including Nicole, her friends, and Rena, all moved under the Craigflower Bridge. The girls told Rena they didn't want to fight her, they just wanted to party with her. But wisely, Rena didn't believe them, so she used a payphone to call home. Rena spoke with her brother and said she would be on her way home. Her brother would later say that Rena sounded scared and she was crying. Rena tried to walk away after she got out of the phone booth, but one of the girls grabbed her by the arm and called her a bitch. Rena was still crying and telling the girls she just wanted to go home, but they kept blocking Rena from leaving. One of the girls, who's referred to by the pseudonym Dusty, demanded that Rena give her her bus pass, and when Rena did as she asked, Dusty proceeded to rip it up right in front of her. The girls tried to convince Rena they were all just going to go smoke weed under the bridge, but this wasn't a normal teen hangout. Once they were under the bridge, Shit hit the fan for some reason, and Nicole started screaming at Rena for quote-unquote ruining her life. 
Rena started apologizing for the things she said, the rumors she spread, and the phone book she stole. A screaming match ensued. And then the catalyst for everything began when Nicole burnt Rena's forehead with a lit cigarette. Rena cried out in pain and she took a reflexive swing at Nicole. Nicole's best friend, Kelly Ellard, stepped in and punched Rena in response. Again, Rena kept trying to leave, but the rest of the girls kept surrounding her, hitting her and punching her repeatedly. Then a boy named Warren Glowatsky kicked Rena in the head even though he wasn't involved with the fight to begin with. Another girl kicked Rena down the stairs, and Rena landed face down in the mud. She was pleading for everyone to stop beating her, and she kept apologizing over and over. No one offered to help Rena up, even though she was bleeding and crying and covered in mud. A girl identified by the pseudonym Layla became a temporary protector for Rena. She threatened to punch anyone who went after Rena. The fight broke up at that point and the teens scattered off once again. Rena was left to walk home, staggering and in tears. Nicole and her friends still had Rena's backpack, so they proceeded to throw Rena's pajamas into the river, they ripped pages out of her journal, and then they also threw the journal into the river. Nicole and Dusty returned to their group home at 11.03 p.m. Even though Dusty had bruises across her knuckles from punching Rena repeatedly, the staff didn't note this in their records. Rena, on the other hand, never made it home. This was highly unusual given the circumstances. Rena had called her brother the night before, telling him that she was on her way home. Plus, Rena had plans to go shopping with her uncle on the 15th. It wasn't like Rena not to let her uncle know that the plans had changed. And Rena's brother knew her emotional state when she called the night before. He was confident she would have come straight home. Rena's father, Manjeet, found Nicole's phone book in Rena's room, and her parents called several of the phone numbers in the book looking for Rena or any information on Rena. A missing persons report was filed at 1.50 p.m. on November 15th. The Sandwich police were in charge of the disappearance, and according to Rena's family, they didn't take her disappearance very seriously. Rena had run away before, and she wasn't living with her parents at the time, so it seemed like police initially wrote her off as a runaway who would probably turn up in a day or so. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Sandwich police didn't really do any investigation into who Rena was last seen with until they received a tip from a completely different precinct. During the eight days Rena was missing, rumors were rampant amongst the teenagers in View Royal, but parents, teachers, and police remained oblivious. On November 22nd, Rena's half-naked body was found in the reeds hidden by stalks in the Gorge waterway. At this point, police had interviewed Nicole and Dusty, both of whom denied seeing Rena after she supposedly left Walmart on the 14th. They claimed they didn't even know Rena was missing until they called Rena's mom on the 15th. But police had a completely different version of events from Nicole's roommate at the group home. The roommate told police that Nicole had confessed to her about setting up the whole revenge-slash-murder plot. The roommate also said that Nicole's best friend Kelly was the one who drowned Rena. Then Nicole and Dusty took Rena's shoes and dumped them in a garbage can downtown. They probably would have dumped Rena's clothes too, but they couldn't find them. 
An autopsy was performed on November 24, 1997. The coroner noted multiple blows to the abdominal area, a crushed convulsion injury, extensive bruising under the skin of Rena's face, a bruise in the shape of a sneaker print on the back of the brain, and 18 pebbles were found in Rena's lungs. According to the coroner, Rena was alive when she went into the water. The cause of death was ruled as drowning. The coroner also noted that Rena would have died of her head injuries if she hadn't been drowned. Six teenage girls, including Nicole, were arrested and charged with aggravated assault for the first attack under the Craigflower Bridge. Two other teens, Kelly Ellard and Warren Glowatsky, were charged as adults in the death of Rena Virk. After the other teens left that night, Kelly and Warren followed Rena over the bridge, beat her again, and then dragged her body into the gorge, where she was forcibly drowned by Kelly. Warren apparently confessed to his girlfriend about what happened on the next day after he asked her to bleach blood out of his pants. His girlfriend provided a statement to police, which ultimately led to Warren's arrest. Warren would later tell police, quote, he'd stood by helplessly while Kelly dragged and drowned Rena, end quote. He would also tell police that he didn't know why he kicked Rena in the head. Other accounts mentioned that Kelly and Warren dragged Rena to the other side of the bridge where they forced her to take off her shoes and jacket before they proceeded to beat her again. It's also mentioned in at least one place that Warren told police Kelly smashed Rena's face into a tree, which caused Rena to lose consciousness. In February 1998, the six teenagers were prosecuted in youth court. Three of the girls pleaded guilty to assault causing bodily harm, while the other three girls were convicted of the same offense at trial. Warren's trial began in spring of 1999. He was convicted of second-degree murder and given a life sentence. But because he was 16 at the time of the murder, Warren would be eligible for parole after serving seven years of his sentence. Warren went on to reform himself in prison. He eventually apologized to Rena's parents, who even supported him when he requested full parole. This was granted in 2010. Rena's parents told the media that Warren was the only one involved in Rena's murder that actually took responsibility for his actions. Kelly Ellard had a different path. It took nearly a decade for her to be convicted. In her first trial, Kelly, quote, presented herself as a demure schoolgirl speaking in a hushed voice with faint traces of a British accent, end quote. Kelly's extended family sat in the front row as they attended every day of her trial. Kelly was represented by one of Canada's most distinguished lawyers, Adrian Brooks, and her family believed that she was unfairly accused. But the jury found Kelly guilty in 2000. The judge handed down the lightest sentence possible, basically using some version of the argument that Kelly came from a good home, had never been in trouble before, etc., etc. In 2001, the Supreme Court of Canada overturned the conviction. The second trial began in 2004. This time, the prosecutor relentlessly challenged Kelly in the courtroom, and a different side of Kelly emerged. Kelly rolled her eyes and spoke with sarcasm a far cry from the innocent schoolgirl act she played in the first trial. Unfortunately, a mistrial was declared because the jury was deadlocked at 11 to 1. 
So a third trial began in 2005. Once again, Kelly was found guilty. The conviction was temporarily set aside and the verdict was appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada. But rather than holding a fourth trial, the court upheld both the conviction and the sentence, which was an automatic life sentence with no parole eligibility for seven years. Unlike Warren, Kelly continued to claim she was innocent and, quote, behaved in a manner erratic and menacing, end quote. Kelly had numerous infractions in prison, including hoarding toothbrushes to make shanks and using crystal meth. Kelly eventually got a job in the prison library and became pen pals with a 41-year-old man, and the two eventually became romantically involved. Kelly found herself back in the Canadian spotlight when the public learned she was eight months pregnant in October 2016 after she'd been allowed conjugal visits with her pen pal boyfriend. At a parole hearing in February 2017, Kelly took responsibility for her actions, but not really. She said she took Rena to the river to splash water on her face and wake her up, but she didn't mention anything about drowning her. Kelly was granted escorted prison releases to take her newborn baby to doctor's appointments. In August 2019, Kelly was granted overnight leaves and extended day parole, and last year it was revealed Kelly had given birth to a second child with the same man. The last update I found was that Kelly remains on day parole with plans to, quote, reintegrate her into the community, end quote. After Rena's death, her parents lobbied the Canadian government to enact anti-bullying programs in schools. They also started going on public speaking tours about Rena's murder as part of their anti-bullying campaign. In 2009, Rena's parents were honored with the Anthony J. Holm Award of Distinction for their contributions to crime prevention and community safety. Unfortunately, Rena's mother, Suman, died in June 2018 at the age of 58 after a tragic choking accident while she was eating at a restaurant in Victoria. And that is the tragic, heartbreaking, and senseless murder of Rena Virk. To share your thoughts on this episode, please head over to our Facebook page, click on the Groups tab, and join our discussion group. You will find the post for this episode there. As always, thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate all of our listeners and supporters. And don't forget to head over to our Instagram page to enter our 10,000 downloads giveaway. The giveaway ends on December 10th, so don't miss out.